90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. Taking a break from field camp while my whole class is up freezing their heinies off in Leadville, Colorado. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I haven't even looked, but I do know that it snowed like six inches three days before they got there, so... I laugh. Well, Leadville's cool. <laughs> Literally. No, it is a neat place, though. No, it is. It's really cool. Um, they're up there. So in a lot of field camps, they take a, a week off to go see the sites around the area, you know. And so that's what our week is doing. Um, we have a lot of industry sponsorship that helps us do these trips and so they're spending four days in Leadville doing acid mine drainage and a lot of water quality stuff with our new hydrology professor and then they going to head over to the Rocky Mountain National Park area and do some glacial geology which is not something we get to do in Oklahoma something you've done a lot of but they don't see this very much right a lot might be a stretch but yeah no glacial geology is great and I'm glad they're getting uh, a chance to experience it. Yeah, yeah. So that's what's that's what's going on. So I'm taking the week off back at home where it's ridiculously hot and yeah, feels like a jungle here. Well, we can't seem to stay in the same time zone. So you went from mountain to central and I went from central back to mountain. So I'm actually up in Canada for uh, some meetings this week. <laughs> this is impressive. We should like track our mileage through the year and see what that looks like. Uh, yes. So... <laughs> So no, I'm I'm up here in the north. It's uh it's a little cool, but overall not too bad and doesn't stay dark for very long. Oh man, how weird is that? I remember doing field work in Scotland and being like, it's two AM. It looks like six o'clock outside. Uh-huh. Yeah, real strange. <laughs> not not quite that bad, but it last light is probably around eleven or eleven fifteen PM yeah, right it's, now. It's so so weird to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. Um, I don't mean you can stay up and, you know, record this podcast. <laughs> exactly. So on one of our more recent podcasts, I said something about, well, you know, there's this way that we classify like sandstones and things. And it's a triangle and it has things on the axes and you have <laughs> names for it instead of just reporting percentages like a sensible geophysicist would do. <laughs> We did this geologist thing and we drew arbitrary lines and gave them names. And Shannon took that as a cue to say, I'm going to put you through that yet again. So this week we're talking about folk classification. (laughs) You made me snort. Um, It's not arbitrary. There are numbers on this. Yeah, but who picked the numbers? Yeah, they're arbitrary. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so we're talking about folks classic classification scheme and we say folk with very reverential tones. Um, it's named after Bob Folk, who was a very famous sedimentologist just south of here at UT Austin. Um, and he came up with this and it is, everybody should have this tattooed on them. And I can't tell you how many times in the last two weeks I have yelled, you cannot call a rock a sandstone. Give it a folk name. Give it a folk name. Give it a folk name. Sounds very hipster. It does. <laughs> Which I love because I was reading um, 
Robert Folk just died last year, and I was reading his obituary, and they talked about on his 90th birthday, they had a remembrance that they clearly called Folk Tales, which I thought was amazing. (laughs) Um, That's great. Yeah, exactly. And then my advisor worked with uh, him as well during one of his sabbaticals. So, like I said, really famous guy. He's just from just south of here, and he's basically changed you know, how we do geology. And the classification scheme was around before folk, but he made it even more wordy and arbitrary. <laughs> right. And I, I give it a hard time, but it would be prohibitively expensive and only marginally useful to actually go out and get what percentage of all these different things that we're going to talk about are in a rock so you know you go out to the field you're not going to be able to have some little folk classification gun that you point at the thing and squeeze the trigger and it tells you this is how much quartz and so on is in this rock that'd be expensive and a lot of times it wouldn't exactly matter so this is sort of a a good enough scheme that you can do generally with your eye (laughs) well i mean you have to do it with your eye in any sedimentary petrology class for sure (laughs) <laughs> right and uh yeah i mean you can get these exact numbers but that involves this thing called point counting which is where you literally count every grain in a rock and nobody's got time for that <laughs> so oh, undergrads have lots of time for undergrads that. have time for that you're exactly right <laughs> <laughs> um but this is how we name sandstone so if you're in an upper level geology class you are never allowed to say that rock's a sandstone that's not okay which seems counterintuitive to maybe everybody um but i thought we'd talk about this what is lovingly called the qfr triangle or the qfl triangle there's a little bit of difference between those two things which we'll get to um but so folks classification is imagine a triangle the top is a q the bottom as you look at the triangle left is an f for feldspar uh, the Q is for quartz, and then the bottom right is R for rock fragments. And then there's two additional triangles past that. But we'll just start with the QFR for now. Right. So rock fragments is very general. So you right. could sort of think of it as quartz, feldspar, and remainder. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, you could. <laughs> yes. And the rock fragments are also really hard to identify, a lot of times, especially in hand sample. Um, but so there is a, there is an aspect of math to this. <laughs> and what you want to look at are those three things. And you're going to sort of normalize everything to 100% of those three things. And from there, you make these determinations, which sometimes is easy. Sometimes it's relatively difficult. It's much easier when you have a thin section and you can put it under a microscope than when you're out in the field, but also only one professor I know of carries around a microscope in the field. So, and that's yeah. <laughs> our igneous petrologist. He famously <laughs> carries a microscope with him on field trips, but we do not. So you're left with this QFR and you have to figure out what you have. And these words might be pretty familiar to people, but anything that's 95% quartz or above is a quartz aronite. And then you have various <laughs> ranges from Arcos, which is a whole bunch of feldspars, so less than 75% quartz, to litharonites. And we can break those down a little bit more from there. Right. And so we're not going to go necessarily over every single one of these classifications. No. 
pull up a picture of this triangle. You should. <laughs> and and have a look. So Corsair Knights, that little segment at the very top, uh, you know, it's all the, if this were a food pyramid, it's all the sugars and fats and things that you shouldn't have. <laughs> it's more like the fruits and vegetables, though, for most people's actual food pyramid. <laughs> right. And that one is pretty straightforward to identify. Does it look like a big glob of quartz? It's a Corsair Knight. <laughs> right. So one thing to keep in mind when you're classifying a clastic rock, so by that I mean these little clasts that are stuck together, not a limestone, is that you don't take into account the thing that's holding it together. So you never pay attention to the cement. It's all about the grains. That's the first thing that's actually pretty hard to teach, is that we don't care about cement when we name it. Only grains. And the cements can vary wildly. So you can have all quartz grains that are cemented together with iron. It's still a quartz aronite. All quartz grains cemented together with quartz. Still a quartz aronite. So it actually makes it easier. Right. Right. So then we go down between 75 and 95% quartz mm-hmm. is where we get into these things that are sub. So we call them subarcos and sublitheronite. See, it's so easy. We could have made up an entirely new name there, and we didn't. Good job, folk. <laughs> right. So they're below Arcos. And this one, it's a little confusing to me at first, right? Because you say it's sub-Arcos, so it's less than Arcos, but it's closer to the top of the pyramid. <laughs> but you think about it, you're like, okay, well, Arcos has mostly feldspar. Right. So this has less feldspar. It's below Exactly. The amount of feldspar that an arcos has, so it's subarcos. Yes. Yeah, see, it makes total sense. Even though it's not visually making sense. <laughs> right. So right. 75% or more quartz, and of that remainder, 50% or more arcos. So there's a lot of, you know, casting aside your last ratio and re-ratioing these things. Um, and that gives you the subarcoses, like you said. And then if you move down the pyramid... In the less than 75% quartz, but 51% or more feldspars, you have two guys, Arcos and Lithic Arcos. So obviously you've got Arcos, which is mostly feldspars and quartz, and then Lithic Arcos, which has a few little rock fragments thrown in there. Right. And then, I, yeah. <laughs> then we go to the right of the, the center here. <laughs> so we get to more rock fragments than feldspar. Mm-hmm. Right. And we get to a wonderful name, Feldpathic Litheronite. I love it so much. <laughs> it's my favorite part of this triangle, and you just rarely get to use it, but I really love it. But so it's, it's a Litheronite, which uh-huh. is mostly rock fragments. Right. But there's some Feldspar, so it's Feldpathic. Exactly, which makes sense. The opposite side of that is Lithic Arcos, which is an Arcos, but it's got some Lithic, so it's Lithic Arcos. To me, this is outrageously intuitive in terms of the naming scheme but the numbers really throw people off which is real disturbing to me that we can't just do normalization ratios but we can't it's just real hard for undergrads to grasp right and it's not a like well if it's half uh so if one to one of feldspar rock fragments is down the center of the triangle here mm-hmm. it's not like well when you get to halfway across is when it goes arcos to lithic it's a third of the way right or two-thirds depending on which direction you're going right so 
it's hard to get an Arcos. It's hard to get a Letharanite. It's really easy to get a Lithic Arcos or a Feldspathic Letharanite. If you're looking at a thin section, in hand sample, you hardly ever name those that because that's where everybody's like, eh. <laughs> okay, that's fair. So it's it's interesting how how this works out. And and this is whenever I taught sedentary petrology lab. Like this is my favorite thing to do is to make students look at a hand sample and name the rock. And then you give them a thin section and they name the rock something else. And then you're like, aha, joke's on you. It's the same rock, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which I mean was funny, but also the point is these look very different in these two media and it's gives you, makes you learn the importance of having a hand lens. So this little magnifying glass, like a little jeweler's loop out in the field, because your eyeball is only so good. You get this hand lens down there and you can see the grains much more easily to make these identifications that are really important when it comes to provenance, which we'll get to in a minute when we get through these other little triangles. <laughs> right. And it does make me wonder if in the future, when some of these uh, material characterization technologies continue to get miniaturized and cheaper, if we one day we will have a folk gun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That yeah, you just, you know, take off your belt and point at the rock and go boom, and you've got Ugh. the exact classification. Ugh, yeah. And there goes field geology forever, but, you know, I guess it's good. <laughs> <laughs> you still have to be in the field to use it. Yeah, that's true. Okay. That makes me happier. But, I mean, think of what that do for, you know, sticking those on any kind of rover you want to send on any planet. That that would be worth it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you mentioned these sub-triangles. So let's start out on the uh, the feldspar side. It's the simple one. There's just one sub-triangle. <laughs> right. So there are two different kinds of feldspar. Okay. Don't attack me. We generally say you've got K-spars and then plage. Okay. So sodium or potassium feldspars is basically how we do this. And I've actually never heard anyone take it this far to say you know, plagioclase arcos. I've never seen that done. I have not either. Yeah, so that sub-triangle exists, but I don't think it's used a lot. I think in general, if you classify something as an arcos, it's expected to be said when you're describing the rock. So sort of any strat column you would look at if you're looking at a geologic map should say, you know, this is an arcos. It has predominantly K-feldspar. Right. Right. And, it, and this is also an important note that no one ever remembers, is that if you have granite fragments in a rock, and last year we talked about the fountain formation, last year, maybe two years ago, it's been a while, <laughs> and this is my favorite formation, and it is an arcos, but it has huge chunks of granite in it. So not just a big chunk of feldspar, but it'll have a big chunk of like feldspar and quartz stuck together. So granitic fragments always go towards the arcos pole. Interesting. Yes. Which, when we talk about the provenance, it'll make it a little more clear. But everyone always forgets that. So even if you if you have a chunk of a granite fragment, you think, oh, it's a rock fragment. I can see. It's from a granite. Doesn't go to the rock fragment pole. Goes to the feldspar pole. All right. Yeah. But going to the rock fragment poles, where we have these other little sub-triangles. And these are pretty important. And these are used all the time. Because you can say, okay, 
We have got this rock, and it's got less than 75% quartz and a 3 to 1 ratio rock fragments to feldspars. So I'll call it a litharonite. That's enough, right? Never enough. <laughs> because what are the liths in the litharonite? <laughs> right. So we have to know some more about it. And let's think about what these liths might be. So they could be... What are the three types of rock? Right. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> sedimentary, igneous, or metamorphic. Right. So we don't do things like call them metalitharonites <laughs> or iglitharonites. <laughs> but oh. with sandstone fragments, sedaronite. That's that's acceptably close. Right. That one makes sense, even though we still never let people go there because you still got three more past mm. that. But Metamorphic rock fragments are called filaronites, which, you know, a philite is a fairly common metamorphic rock. And then these volcanic rock fragments will be called a volcaronite because, like I told you, it has to come from a volcano because if it's a granite, it goes to the feldspar pole. Right. And, well, I'm not going to say anything because igneous petrologists will throw things at me. <laughs> uh, so, volcaronites. Philaronites and sedaronites. But sedaronites, so I'll say, okay, igneous and metamorphic rocks, it's good enough to say it's igneous <laughs> or it was metamorphic. I'll stop there. Sedimentary rocks, we're going to say, well, what makes up the sedimentary rock? Because it could have been another sedimentary rock, an igneous rock, exactly. or a metamorphic rock. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, yes. <laughs> Um, so it's easy to identify metamorphic quartz, so anyone that's done this, um, but metamorphic quartz just gets stuck into the quartz aronite, unless it's a big chunk of a metamorphic rock, then it gets put in the metamorphic rock fragments. Um, but yeah, these said rocks could be pieces of anything that have been recycled tons of times. But this is fairly common, is you don't stop at said aronite, because what is it? So it could be pieces of limestone, and if they're pieces of limestone stuck together, that's not a limestone, it's a clastic rock now, and we call that a calcolithite. If they're pieces of another sandstone <laughs> or shale, it becomes easily enough sandstone aronite or shale aronite. And then if it's pieces of chert, which is super common, it's a chert aronite. Right, so I remember when we were doing classification uh, in sedimentary petrology, seeing a decent amount of chert aronite. Right. And yeah. then I tended to classify a lot of things as sub, so sort of those more general categories. Uh, but I don't know that that was always agreed with. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> That's true. Um, chert aronites are real fun because chert looks really cool in thin section. It looks like salt and pepper, tiny, tiny salt and pepper mixed together. So that one's pretty easy. But yeah, you're right. The rest of these are really hard. Sandstone aronites are a little bit difficult sometimes. Shale aronites for sure, because they look like volcanics or metamorphics. Capglothites, super easy. Um, so that's fun. And you can tell that this is obviously put together by sedimentologists because the sed rocks get all the love here. We don't care about metamorphic or volcanic rock fragments at all. Right. It's enough to say they're volcanic. <laughs> That's it. That's all you get. <laughs> um, but why do you, why would we do this? Like, what's the point of having this ridiculously looking triangle at all? Well, I can say this is a sublitharonite or this is a chert aronite. And in your head, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Exactly. 
And when we talk about sedimentary rocks, sedimentary rocks aren't pretty. I tell that to everyone. I mean, they're pretty in their own way, but since you know you have to say that in their own way, it means they're not pretty. <laughs> like, igneous rocks are real pretty. Metamorphic rocks are real pretty. The cool thing to me, and to a lot of people, I think, about sedimentary rocks is thinking about the processes that got them there, right? And so that's what's so interesting to me is the process part of sedimentary rocks. And that's what the importance of saying these very specific names are. Um, because before Folk's triangle, you know, there's this thing called the QFL triangle and it is the same thing. So quartz, feldspars, and lithics. And what you can do is make these categorizations and then you can start to say, where did these rocks come from? So what's the provenance of these sedimentary rocks? And that's what's really cool. Right. So like a quartz aronite, what's the provenance of that? So, I mean, a quartz aronite is probably a really mature rock, meaning it's been around a long time. Um, it's only got this quartz in it. It's been reworked a whole bunch. And so you can say, like, these quartz aronites would come from, say, a stable craton is one of the QFL diagrams. And you look at, okay, that's the cratons and are the first parts that we built on the continents. It's been around a long time. Um that's probably where you get these really mature rocks from is those kind of rocks. Right. And then, so you can go down, some of these are a little more obvious than others, like a volcaronite. Yeah. Yeah. So all that stuff comes from, you know, volcanics. Right. (laughs) Um, So, you know, you can talk about this, this all goes back to plate tectonics, right? So where are you getting volcanics on a large scale stuff like Island arc subduction or just other types of subduction zones? Um, is where you can get those volcaronites, also where you can get these filaronites too. Um, and then obviously the feldspar pole, I told you that these granitic rock fragments, that would become important because you get a lot of these big feldspars. They don't last very long in erosion. Feldspars are easily reacted and they're real pointy. And so you can't transport them a long way because they don't get rounded like quartz. And these are from stuff like basement uplifts or these big things underground you know, where you've got granite forming, those things that are getting eroded fairly close to the source are where you're going to get these arcoses and things like that. Right. So that's why it's important to have these very specific names. And so when your students are yelling at you and saying, this is stupid, (laughs) well, if you're ever going to go into sedimentology and you want to know where stuff is done, this is why you have to do it. And just like you said, John, it takes a lot of money or a long time to figure out these exact percentages, but there are tons of sedimentologists that do just this. You disaggregate a rock, which takes a long time. (laughs) Right. And then you send it through a specific set of these heavy fluids and then put it in this ridiculous little counting machine and it can figure out your exact percentages. And then you know more precisely where these rocks come from, which is a big deal when trying to work out, say, the history of a basin something similar to that right but i would say i don't know exactly what the cost of doing that process is i know it's high the cost of people's time is also high yeah Mm -hmm. but i would say probably in large somebody with a decent amount of training and experience could probably match the the bulk classification of the machine pretty easily challenge accepted (laughs) um that's interesting i would like to see that 
done. I feel like that should be done. I'll try to find that for a fun paper. Surely yeah. someone has done this, right? I mean, I could be totally wrong, but this seems like one of those things where computers are good at counting things, but humans can also be once they're trained. Right, exactly. And I just saw a thing. Um, there's some new stuff about um, counting because obviously this machine learning is definitely going towards that in geology. But there's so many subtleties in a microscopic slide that I think it's, I think you're right. I think it's hard to quantify that with a computer yet. Well, and I thought it was interesting. So people initially are very bad at estimating. Yes. Volume percentage. Very bad. Uh, That's also why pie charts are just unholy. (laughs) So, my dad, when he got his geology degree, they had them cut like out of pieces of paper circles that would be like what you're looking at under the microscope, and then they had to glue down what 10% looks like, what 20% looks like as little fragments. Oh, my God. So I've clearly seen those things before, but never had to actually do it. I bet that was the greatest learning experience ever. Obviously, if your dad told you about it. Right. Right. And, I mean, you would be surprised what 20% looks like. It's not what you think. No. No. To me, it's much more. Yeah. It's a fifth. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, 20% I'd be like, oh, that's not that much. Look at this. But then you look at these actual, because they have this printed you know, this is sort of a dark and light thing. You know, this is what 20% looks like. You're like, whoa, that's a ton. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. I bet people underestimate it constantly. Hmm, so, that's, a, that's a good idea. Maybe I'll go back to doing that. So if nobody's uh, nobody's uh, done this comparison yet, I think that's beckoning for us to have it done. Yeah, 100%. Um, that. That's a very interesting idea. So we'll look for that. But but that's the importance of these ridiculously sounding or seeming names. Um, but they're actually quite important when you're trying to talk about the provenance of clastic rocks. And just instead of handing somebody this and saying, look at this sandstone, which I always freak out about. Look at this subarcos. And immediately I know something about it's not only what's in it, but potentially where it came from. Right. Rough idea. Yeah, exactly. Rough idea. But uh, yeah, so that's the triangle that vexes so many students for an entire, you know, half semester in petrology class. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I think with that, it's probably time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. I picked this one for you because it's got lasers. (laughs) Yes, it does have lasers. (laughs) And it uses lasers to potentially do things with material characterization. So maybe the future folk gun <laughs> will use this. Oh, this is this is really weird. This is it has a video which I love, obviously. And I just read the the little blurb about it instead of going into the whole um, paper. But the loudest underwater sound possible with a stream of water and a laser. Right, and I actually really wanted to read the paper, but it's paywalled. Yeah. So you can read the abstract, you can read this article, you can look at the supplemental material. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, cool videos, so that's okay. Right. (laughs) 
So you might be thinking, well, it's going to be an earthquake or it's going to be one of those shrimp that causes yep. cavitation and light. That's what I thought it was going to be. That's what I thought it was going to be, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, because those, they have a link in here, that paper, which shows that pistol shrimp produce more decibels than a Pink Floyd concert. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, but actually, this is a little teeny... You know, few micron, tens of micron in diameter water jet that they zap with a laser and cause it to alter cavitate. I got really scared about watching this video and I thought maybe I should turn the sound down. <laughs> but um, they did it in a vacuum, obviously, so it didn't actually create a sound. But if it were, it would be the loudest sound ever because if they turned it up anymore, it would actually start vaporizing the water, in which case... To make a sound, you have to have a medium through which the sound travels, and they'd get rid of that medium. So that's crazy. Right. And it said it's around 270 decibels. Which is really, really loud. Yeah. Yeah. They compared it to um, NASA's loudest ever rocket launch, which was only 205 decibels. Right. And remember, decibels, it's a logarithmic thing, right? So Right. Yeah. So it's not like it's just, you know, 65 more. Right. Yeah. It is turning the knob past 11. (laughs) This is crazy. And I thought, why would you do this? Right. And so one more point of reference. Mm -hmm. If you were to stand behind an airliner, that's about 130 decibels. Oh, my gosh. So this isn't twice as loud as that, remember? (laughs) Yeah. And so anything above 80 decibels, uh, the safety folks say you need hearing protection. Right, yeah. Uh, So we've got this really loud thing. What are we going to do with it? Well, we're not going to do anything with it, Mm. but we're going to use it to help create better instruments because we want to get that... That cat, that cavitation, that chalk, that sound wave, up to as loud as we can, but not over. Right, because then you know, then that's bad, and stuff starts to break down. Right. Right, and so I thought this sentence alone <laughs> shows you what a, an amazing time we're living in. So <laughs> scientists regularly suspend little bits of intriguing matter, say a specific type of protein crystal, for example in fluid jets and blast them with lasers to determine their chemical properties. (laughs) That's awesome. You would have been locked away if you said that 50 years ago. I know, exactly. Routinely suspend. (laughs) So you put your thing on a little water jet that floats it in a controlled way, like, you know, a cartoon character on top of a geyser. Exactly. In the path of a laser. Why are you doing that? Because anything else that you hold it on, the laser is going to ablate some of that and you're going to measure its properties too. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This is awesome. And so obviously there are lots of things you need to know their chemical properties of. And so hence why this is done really routinely. And you also need to know what kind of laser you can hit it with, right? And that's where you get into looking at the you know, structural integrity of these things you're blasting right so you look at structural integrity you can look at a lot of properties because remember everything is really just a form of light Mm -hmm. at different wavelengths yeah so 
so we can consider this laser or x-ray laser to be doing things like diffraction and other things that we're used to doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this is really cool. We should probably just use this as another fun paper, but researchers use that same sort of laser technology to blast the electrons out of an atom, creating a little bitty black hole. That's crazy. And it sucked in all electrons from nearby atoms. That's insane. Like how did like you make that thing and you think that's the beginning of the end of the world, right? Like when is it going to stop sucking atoms? That's scary. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's very interesting. It's kind of cool. And the videos were cool too. Yeah. So I don't know. Would you say this made a splash? It was well heard? <sighs> I'd say it's time to go. <laughs> Study heard around the world. Oh, yeah. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> Control. So, got him off. <laughs> the link to this paper as well as to the triangle diagram, so you can take a look at that, is, of course, in the show notes. If you've got a fun paper we would like to hear about, would like to tell us how you would classify our show, would it be a subarcos? Would it be a quartz aronite? I'm not totally sure. I think we have a lot of fragments, so so maybe I'll head over towards that side of the triangle. Uh, We would love to hear your feedback. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, Send us that show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're hanging out in the Slack chat room, um, the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. We're on Twitter, too, at Shannon Doolin and at geo underscore Lehman. Together, we are at Don't Panic Geo. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for helping us keep going. And until next week, remember... Don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.